You're listening to the Pullbox Podcast, the international graphic novel book club. Here are your hosts, Curtis Finley and Michael Cohen. Welcome back to the Pullbox Podcast. I am Curtis Finley, one of your hosts. And I'm Michael Cohen, your other host. And today we have a special episode because we are talking about Cliffhanger Comics, that famous short-lived comic book <laughs> company from the early 2000s, I guess, late, the late, late 90s, late 90s and early, early 2000s. 2000s. Yeah. Um, but you know, before we get into that, um, last month was a pretty cool month. Yeah. In case you didn't listen to that one, uh, we had a special guest, Tony Cliff, who is the author, artist, creator of Delilah Dirk Comics, and uh, we had a fun time discussing comics with him. Yeah, yeah, it was excellent. So I hope we get another opportunity to <clears throat> mm-hmm. discuss comics with actual comic creators, because I think that brings such a different aspect to the conversation. Yeah. yeah. So um, if any of you comic book creators are out there listening to <laughs> us, send us an email. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Yeah. So cool. our selections this month are all cliffhanger books. So I've chosen um, to read Danger Girl, mm-hmm. Danger Girl by J. Scott Campbell and Andy Hartnell. And uh, your choice was Crimson yep. by uh, Brian Augustine and Humberto Ramos. That's right. And then we had a our reader poll. Uh, which was suggested by Matthew Campbell. Uh, he suggested Battle Chasers, and we can get to that email yeah. when we get to Battle Chasers a little bit later. Um, how do you want to start talking about this? you want to talk about Cliffhanger itself first? Yeah, well, let's kind of give people a, a brief history for those who might not, not be aware. Um, we'll, we'll try and be as brief as possible. I, for those who don't know, Image Comics was a, a, a comic company that was created in the early nineties by, uh, by a group of, of creators that was intended to be a creator owned, uh, label, a creator owned publisher. And I think it still is. And it is. Yeah. Yeah, Even Uh, to this day. But the, the distinction there is that when you have a, the, the two other major comic companies at the time were Marvel and DC, obviously. And, uh, there were a lot of artists, and writers working for those companies that were really uh, uh, putting their heart and soul into what they were doing and, you know, uh, getting shuffled by editors and taken off of books that they had put a lot of work into, stuff like that. Uh, Various reasons, uh, both uh, artistic and monetary, uh, that led uh, a series of, uh, at that time, what were starting to be considered rock star artists um because that was really the first time in comics history when the artists started to take on this this uh like these personas basically where they yeah. would start connecting with their fans well, and, and stuff. the connect the conventions were yeah. getting more popular then yeah. and stuff. Yeah. so i uh, uh, several i think it was three originally right three three artists that it was um well no it was more than that i think it was because i know it was was it Jim Lee initially as well? Yeah. And like Eric Larson, Mark Silvestri. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was Todd McFarlane? Yeah. Um, there might have been another one. I can't remember. But yeah. So in any case, this group of, of artists uh, and creatives, they decided that they were going to step away from their jobs at Marvel and DC and start their own publisher so that they could create comics that they owned and so that they could create a publisher where other artists could come and create their own comics yeah. and not have to worry that if you created a character that DC or Marvel 
or some large corporation would end up owning the rights to your character right. um, and to, to your work, which which is still a point that's contested today. It's it's an interesting aspect of of the comics industry because uh, <clears throat> there are many characters that we can point to and say, oh, so and so created that character. Yeah. But at the end of the day, that that artist or writer gets. Uh, they they might get nods from people at Comic Cons uh, and people say, "Oh, you created my favorite character," but that's the most that they can hope to get because they don't get royalties. They don't yeah, get, well, and that's the uh, whole paid when those characters have multi million dollar franchise movies, right? And that's why so, the Kirby Estate has been battling so hard yeah. to get all of uh, yeah. recognition for all of that. Yeah, well, and 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 uh, up until a few years ago, the uh, the 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 Siegel Estate was fighting over. Superboy, uh, yeah, over Superboy and and the rights to to certain Superman characters, yeah, because they were created, I and mean, that's a slightly different situation. Um, yes, because DC was a little bit more shady <laughs> back then. <laughs> but I, uh, but yeah, it, it is the comics industry is a weird place because it's it's built on the backs literally of of these artists and writers. But uh, they are work for hire. They're they're yep. freelance for for lack of a better term. Even though they're not really freelance, because you sign lots of contracts and and <laughs> uh, do specific deals with specific publishers. But when you're no longer in fashion, uh, you're sort of out in the cold, all on your own, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. and that happens all the time in not just comic books but like any industry there if you animation you a, and video games are very similar yeah, as well. if you have a, a company that's going to create a product you say hey let's get a bunch of people together create a product yeah. it's going to be the company's product yeah but uh we want your input in designing it and creating it and stuff and it's the same with like we want yeah. to create a superhero let's get these people together to create a superhero but it's our superhero yeah not your superhero it's interesting because it all comes down to copyright law right yep. and i was uh, i was actually saying to amanda in, in an episode of quiver recently i don't know if it made it into the actual episode but we were talking about copyright and i i voiced my opinion that i think that copyright should be abolished i think copyright shouldn't exist because it was created to uh basically to to support uh, content creators uh, in 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 the content that they like the the artistic properties that they create and the intellectual properties. Yeah. But what it has become is a legal shield for corporations, right? To yeah. s- yeah. you know send cease and desist letters. But then at the same time, you don't want a big company. If there's no copyright and you yeah. create something, and a big company says we're gonna take that's a great idea. Let's just take that and yeah throw through a machine and make millions of dollars off of it and you don't get anything sure. like there's that side of it sure. too of course but the other side of it is i i just watched a great video this week that was just released uh by as i think the production company is called bat in the sun they do these superhero beatdown videos and they have a video this uh i think it's about five or ten minutes long of batman fighting darth vader and oh yeah, I it yeah. is excellent. It's super well done. I mean, obviously, it looks like it's an amateur uh, 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 short film, yeah. right? But regardless of the the that level, uh, whether or not it's an actual cinematic quality or not, the budget that they put into it, and then the amount of work that they put into it, it's it's good enough that you can watch it and not really think about the yeah, quality, yeah. right? And uh, and when you see something like that, it just it just goes to show that 
uh, if you sort of let these characters go and uh, the really and, cool things can yeah, happen. Yeah, awesome stuff yeah. can happen because uh, the, it, the, the stewards of that property might not actually be the best people, right? For, yeah. for that property, yeah. I mean, uh, they, they might they might mistreat it. They might sit on a property, which is the worst thing that happens these days. Um, yeah, where where a company will just sort of sit on a character because they don't want anybody else to make profit off of it, <laughs> right? And then we end up with issues like Spider Man and the X Men and the rest of the Marvel universe all being at different studios. And yeah. In any case, oh, we've gotten far afield, but I uh, yeah okay. yeah we can bring it back. Let's bring it back yeah. to Image and Image basically functioned at that time functioned as distributors. Like they yeah. they printed comics. And sent them out to the comic shops. And so each of the creators formed their own production company. So Todd yeah. McFarlane had Todd McFarlane company, uh, Productions. Um, Mark Silvestri had Top Cow. And like Jim Lee started up Wildstorm. Yeah. And then they'd have their characters published under Wildstorm or whatever, which is um, operated under the, the image banner. And then Jim Lee took a chance on some... Other creators, kind of once, um, I guess, after about six or seven years of Image being around, he, yeah. he said to J. Scott Campbell you can, and uh, to, to uh, Humberto Ramos, they wanted to start their own company as well. So that mm-hmm. started under Wildstorm. So they, uh, it's like there's Image, then there's Wildstorm, and now there's Cliffhanger. Yeah. So we're three levels deep into companies yeah, right. to get to Cliffhanger. And Cliffhanger, well, it, it, it was... I it's really interesting because it was kind of the 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 new wave of comics at the time. Yeah. Um and it really has informed a lot of what we're reading today and and definitely the way that DC and Marvel are doing things now is is very informed by Cliffhanger. Um Cliffhanger was I uh, to my recollection one of the first uh, uh, comic publishers to go really heavy on digital coloring yes and yeah. spend a lot of time and a lot of effort it to the point of giving uh giving the colorist billing on on the actual books mm-hmm. um which which i don't I, I mean everybody sort of got their their credit on the first page uh back in the day and they still do with most comics but um with with a lot of what Cliffhanger did, you can see that uh, uh, Sandra Hope was was the colorist on Crimson, and her name is right up there with everybody else, uh, with Brian Augustine and Humberto Ramos as as an important part of that team. And I think it was Liquid was on uh, 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 Battle Chasers, and those right. are the those honestly. As much as the artists made the comics, those comics stand out. I think that the colorists are what made cliffhanger something exciting on the shelf oh for sure yeah because it stood out of, yeah for the first else. time comics had this really really polished like super yeah. professional look where they almost they they honestly in some instances look better than most animated movies that you'd go to yeah. see because you're dealing yeah. especially with covers with sort of like a one-off uh, uh, image <laughs> so you can you can put a lot of effort and time into those colors and just make everything pop well and the uh, marvel and dc had been doing digital coloring for a yes. few years before that already yeah. um but these guys yeah these days just stepped it up yeah with all yeah. of their effects it, it, the, it, the lighting was is um yeah so different to me it had always felt like uh like marvel 
because Joe Maderera worked for Marvel for a while, and and he he was drawing for X Men for quite a while, um, and when he was drawing for X Men, they they had excellent digital colors on that as yeah. well. But uh, but it was applying the same principles to their their regular their old style coloring yeah. job, yeah. But just using it digitally, whereas this so some gradients would come into into exactly. effect every yeah. once in a while. But yeah, when when it got to cliffhanger. It became almost like fully three D rendered, yeah. right? Where where those artists, uh, the the colorists, were allowed to actually enhance the uh, the, yeah. the illustration. And now it's now um, doing hand coloring is a lost art. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> the true. way it's become. Yeah, um, I wanted to read a little bit from the introduction that J. Scott Campbell wrote in the Danger Gold sure. book because I think it uh, really says a little bit about his the way he approached. Um, Danger Girl and the way I think Cliffhanger kind of approached their comics as well um, and I have to find where it starts um, <laughs> I was going to create an action adventure movie comic book he says movie in quotes movie comic book a comic that would feel a lot less like the Super Friends and a lot more like Indiana Jones and the best Bond films I wanted to push the boundaries of camera angles I was going to use more widescreen frames. Um, and most importantly, I was going to speed up the action and have lots of it. This comic would always be on the move and never ever be boring. Um, and I think that's true enough for Danger Girl, and I think for the other ones as well. Yeah. Um, that's just, it, it's a more, I guess, cinematic approach to yep. to the comics. It, like, I'm, I'm surprised that these movies haven't been made into the comics haven't been made into movies. It, it is. It's astounding to me that that these cliffhanger properties, all three of the ones that we're talking about on this episode, uh, not a single one of them has been has been produced. I think Danger Girl was optioned back yep. in that back at the time, and I think people and it's still, still are sitting holding with on somebody. To it, yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, honestly, like Danger Girl, it, it, we can probably segue right into into talking about Danger Girl because sure. it is of the three the most like sort of ready for prime time oh for sure uh, you could take that exact story from the first volume from that the initial. only volume. oh yeah you know, i guess uh, there's there, lots of there's, volumes there's That's been true. more danger girl stuff since but yeah. none of it was with cliffhanger it was with other i think it was with idw um uh since then yeah but uh that first story that they put together that andy hartnell and, and j scott campbell put together is perfect for a film uh, and you might you might cut some of the sequences out, you know, like sort of tighten it up a little bit. But what's there, the actual plot of what's there, is absolutely one hundred percent perfect, and yep. it's basically a screenplay. Yep. So the fact that it hasn't happened is kind of ridiculous. But uh, it's th- this was your pick, so why don't you <laughs> give everybody sort of a little bit more of an introduction uh, sure. to what Danger Girl is? So first off, I um, when when Cliffhanger Comics first came out, I didn't read any of them. <laughs> I'll just put that right out there. I, um, I, I was totally aware of them because how mm-hmm. could you not be? Yeah. Um, and but I, I don't know. They just didn't interest me. I was more into the superheroes at the time, and these aren't really superheroes, so I didn't really touch them. Um, so, so this was this was great. I found Danger Girl at a thrift store for a buck, so I bought it, um, and this gave me an opportunity to read it. It it, um, it's about a group of female spies they call themselves the danger girls and the one danger girl in particular that the story focuses on 
is Abby Chase, who is an archaeologist and like a treasure hunter. She's basically a female Indiana Jones. Um, and she, at the very beginning of the book, she gets drafted into uh, this this group of spies because they see her mm-hmm. potential. Um, and then it, the the group of girls is headed up by this one guy named Deuce, I mm-hmm. think. Yes, right, right? Yeah. Deuce. And he's like the Charlie of the group from Charlie's Angels, right? There's lots of connections to that. Yeah. Um, and then they have a big adventure where they're trying to... So the, the, the point of the story is that they're trying to find these three artifacts before the bad guys find them. Because if the bad guys find them, they the three artifacts have this mystical power that will give them ultimate power. <laughs> yes, yeah, so. I mean, they're basically uh, uh, Nazis, and it's right. the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Yep, it's, yep. it's it's a race for the Ark. So exactly. So yeah, and there's there's really nothing special about that plot, like you pointed out. Yep. It's exactly Indiana Jones. Yep. This this book, and he said it in the intro that I just read. It's Indiana Jones and James Bond smashed together with females as the leads. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah with a, a little bit of Charlie's Angels, like you pointed right, out, exactly. also thrown in for good measure. <laughs> so it's um, it's fast paced. It's exciting. Yeah. The art's great. Um, there, yeah. It's if you are, especially if you are a teenage guy, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're gonna eat this thing up. Yeah. Uh, it it's a little dated in its in its pretty stereotypical views of of women in a lot of ways yeah. um but at the same time i mean it's women taking the lead and doing yeah. things that are typically guy things like like we said it's a female indiana jones and a female james bond so yeah. um but at the same time their sexuality is played up and they play they uh, rely a lot on that yeah. kind of stuff as well but overall um overall i enjoyed it they it was also it, uh, the thing about um, cliffhanger comics is their ridiculous release schedule as well. <laughs> yes. um, none of these guys uh, could keep a regular monthly title going. So Danger Girl is only seven issues long. Yeah. But it spans between, I wrote this down so I have the numbers here, it spans between 1998 and 2001. Seven issues in four years. Uh, not a great track record. In fact, it actually was, it was um, six issues in one and a half years, and then there was a hiatus, and then the last double si- double sized issue came out in two thousand and one. Yeah, um, and because of that, like he's very consistent with his art, so it it actually flows really well. You don't notice that there's a big gap, um, but he does change his style in that last double sized issue. Um, so he's his characters a lot more curvy even mm-hmm. like the guy characters and the woman characters like and he puts in a lot more detail in his uh in his lines and in his shading and stuff like that so yeah um that was a little bit noticeable to me um but uh that i mean that happens when you when you <laughs> spend four years yeah so yeah it's understandable um, yeah i on the flip side i i was reading danger girl uh and crimson uh when they were coming out <laughs> yeah. so uh I, no, I wasn't quite there right at the beginning uh, i came into it uh, uh, in 1999 so uh they'd kind of already been on the scene for a little while um but uh some friends and i uh, we went down to our local comic book store one day and saw these titles on the shelf and we each actually there were i think there were three or four of us and we each kind of picked a title and uh and so what we ended up with was I, I, 
uh, Crimson, Danger Girl. Uh, I'm trying to remember. What, I think one one person was reading Battle Chasers, and uh, and I actually didn't pick one of those three titles. I got uh, Fathom, which is a Top Cow yeah. uh, book by Michael Turner, uh, and uh, I. The 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 common thread between these three titles, or these four titles, I should say, is that uh, the covers all had half naked, buxom, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, very uh, f- um, beautiful ladies on them, and we were in the ninth grade. So of you course. can see where our our uh, our our buying trend started and ended, uh, and <laughs> we made all of our decisions based on that. Um, and Why I, wouldn't you, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I and I, I, Danger Girl, Danger Girl, I think stuck out amongst those titles uh, as as the most polished. Um, I think J. Scott Campbell of of all of the the artists uh, had been sort of working in the industry the longest, and he definitely has uh, uh, the tightest style. Um, his anatomy as as uh, ridiculous as the poses are that he'll put his female characters in on a regular basis his anatomy is astounding and mm-hmm. it always has been yeah uh, since he was doing gen 13 and and uh, and and before that um and so uh, we we because uh, we were all also artists so we all were picking up these comics and then trying to emulate these artists and and j scott campbell was the one that we all think looked at and wished that we could be um maybe humberto yeah. ramos was a little bit easier for some people to attain <laughs> but uh, but j scott campbell he was doing stuff that other comics weren't doing uh, as, as most of cliffhanger was same with michael turner uh with with these characters um and and what you got was was i uh, almost realistically proportioned human beings <laughs> i because a lot of comic books had sort of had that either really um, uh, sort of like obnoxious sexualization to them where all of the characters, like they just looked like they were all swimsuit models in swimsuit model poses because they were just taken from reference. Uh, <laughs> or they were that really boring sort of like 1980s comic book style where every character looked exactly the same. Um, and And... So these comics really stood out to us and Danger Girl the most because it did have that super tight story and and this incredible art and uh, and references that we all got at the time. Um, and now when I read it again, uh, I, all these years later, there are so many more references that I didn't catch when I was a kid. But um, Deuce being James Bond, essentially... Uh, James Bond with a ponytail. He's he's Sean Connery as as an older gentleman, um, and then you've got uh, uh, Johnny Barracuda, who is yeah. more like your younger James Bonds, more of like a a, a Pierce Brosnan or a, right. a. He was the James Bond at the time. Yeah, um, but the interesting thing that I always find about it is that Johnny is played up as an idiot like as a fool like he's always played off as as sort of a joke i mean they're all spies they all get the job done but he's this really funny parody of 1960s ladies man Mm -hmm. uh super spies that james bond idea um which i always found even though 
the ladies in the comic are definitely being exploited for their uh, visual appeal. But uh, I think the writing itself, it was very mature for the time. Uh, maybe not by today's standards, because like you say, it is a little bit dated. But at the time, those characters being written in that way was revolutionary. The only other thing of that era that... that is similar and obviously the precursor to danger girl in this respect was Buffy the vampire slayer. And, uh, you, you can see a lot of similarity in the way that the female characters are, are treated in danger girl as, as they were in, in Buffy, Buffy to a more logical and, uh, and realistic, uh, level, but realistic. (laughs) Yeah. Um, as realistic as that is, but, um, well, and this book is almost, it's almost satire. Yes. Um, in fact, I don't know if he had that intention, but that's kind of what it feels like when you're reading it because of all of the, the ties to the other movie franchises and such. Yeah. It's like, that's, if someone's going to make a, a, a funny movie kind of, yeah, yeah, just kind of, uh, mocking that, that genre, then this is kind of, and it. I think that's where Hollywood gets hung up on it and why it hasn't been made it's because people think that it is. So, like that if you made it into a movie that it would need to be a satire and I think that if you played it straight uh, and let the references just sort of flow into people's heads on their own without pointing them out uh, that I think that, that it could be a fantastic film Yeah, but I think a lot of people's first instinct and definitely the first instinct of Andy Hartnell and J. Scott Campbell is to hit those references home yeah. And make sure that you get what's going on and that these characters are are these specific references to things. But uh, I don't know. I think if, if you... And as they have with subsequent Danger Girl stories, uh, if you step back and you kind of let those characters be a little bit more their own characters and a little bit less references to other characters, uh, then... It, it gets stronger. The, 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 the story gets stronger. And mm. I mean, there are so many characters out there that started off as, as a reference, an homage, or a satire of something, but then have ended up being their own characters in their own right. And we talked a lot about Ninja Turtles right. uh, yeah. when, when, we, when we covered the first volume of the IDW series. Um, and that started off as well as a satire yeah. of Frank Miller uh, and like the sort of hard noir comics of that era um, and all the crazy ninja stuff that was in every comic book at the time. And now the Ninja Turtles have a life of their own. And I, I think that yeah. Danger Girl has that capability as well, um, but it would require the right people to do it. And I think it's just what it, they, they missed their window. And so now it it's it's in limbo. It's just kind of sitting yeah. with a studio somewhere, yeah. just doing nothing. And if, yeah, if they had made it at that era, it would have done just fine. But I mean, yeah. Charlie's angels also came out in yes. that era. And maybe they didn't want to compete or something yeah. like that. And yeah, I don't see Charlie's angels flying. If it were a movie today. Yeah. Um, I, it's just, uh, movies are at a different place at the moment. So, uh, people don't yeah. people don't like uh, uh, people like referential comedy, but they don't like referential genre. <laughs> um, right. Even yeah. I, I mean, I guess I guess Guardians of the Galaxy kind of walks that line, but Guardians of the Galaxy is a great example of a property that has a lot of references. I'm talking about the movie in particular, 
that has a lot of references to other properties, but never says any of those references. Really, like, I right. mean, there there are a lot of you know uh, actual literal references to things in in the movie, but I'm saying like character archetypes and and plot threads and yeah. stuff like that that yeah. are definitely um, lifted from other properties, but uh, but it's never sort of like winking at the camera, uh, <laughs> except for maybe in that final credit after the credit sequence. But I. Uh, uh, but yeah, it, it, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I think that that Danger Girl, uh, it doesn't get as much credit as it deserves. Um, it was yeah. I do think that it was part of that vanguard of girl power uh, coming off of Spice Girls and uh, and and, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, it was part of that era of, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, tough chicks kicking butt. And that sort yeah. Of thing. The funny thing though is it's a bunch of guys creating it yes um it that's it, really the big difference yeah with today right because uh but th- like this is why it's cool to look at something like this historically um and it's funny because like i grew up with these comics so when i start thinking of them in a historical context i start thinking about how old i'm getting but <laughs> i i think that a lot of properties today that are, uh, and I'm not just talking about comics, just in, in media in general, that are uh, female created and and uh, and driven by a, an actual uh, a female mindset as opposed to an approximated female mindset. Yeah. Um, I don't think that those things could have happened without there being those few men in the industry who saw the that opportunity right and sort of sort of open those doors or or i shouldn't say open the doors but sort of nudged them so that women could open those doors for themselves right right and uh, and joss whedon's one of them and i think that that with danger girl that j scott campbell as much as he is a cheesecake artist and that's really what (laughs) he is um yeah that he they they did do a lot for for the industry because it showed that that uh, female-led comics could actually sell because these comics did pretty well uh, at at their time. They sure did. Um, and if they could have kept to a schedule, <laughs> yeah. they would have done even better. But when you look at this, when you crack these books open, when you especially Danger Girl, and you start looking at it, and especially like you said, those last that last double issue, that issue seven, you see how much time and attention was put into that line work. You see why it took so long to get these things out. Um, and, and after Danger Girl, J. Scott Campbell worked on two different ideas for Cliffhanger that never came to fruition because they could never get it past the, the concept phase <laughs> because actually drawing the comics, was it just took too long. Uh, his his follow up to Danger Girl was supposed to be like a sort of like a Power Rangers, uh, a Super Sentai, uh, Justice League sort of mashup of, of like these superhero, this group of five uh, people superheroes yeah. that had like these really cool uh, holographic uh, animal battle suits. So like I I can remember one of them was was this uh, female character who was like a, her powers were like Velociraptor, so she had like the raptor claws on her feet and hands, oh, and, yeah. and like sort of a, a a helmet mask thing that would come over. Um, but if you I can't remember the the title of the property, but if you if you look up J Scott Campbell in his history, I'm sure you can find it. 
Um, and if you if you see some of these illustrations, you can see why that comic never happened. And it's because it was just totally impractical for somebody to draw because he was drawing these like layers over top of fully realized characters. Mm, so yeah. there'd be like a velociraptor head over top of this oh, fully boy. drawn female character. And it's like, how many panels can you keep that up for? Yeah, and be expected to to actually put the comic out, right? Well, and that's why doesn't he? He could rely more on assistants. Yeah. And do the layouts and get people to fill it in or whatever. To I don't know. Maybe he's just too he's, controlling uh, for that or something. I don't know. He's he's fallen into this really interesting career now as basically a cover artist. Yeah. And uh, and and a pinup artist because I mean, he that's reasonable for him to yeah, do. Yeah. So uh, I mean, I've got up on my wall his uh, his twenty. 14 calendar his fairy tale fantasies calendar which is the third one that he's done and i've bought every single one that he's done because each and every month is an incredible super detailed illustration but it's the closest thing to a comic book that the guy will <laughs> yeah. ever release ever again because yeah. his his art is just there's just too much to it it's a lot like we talk about i i um mark schultz and xenozoic and that that book was uh, very intermittent in its in its uh, release schedule because the art is just so much further beyond what we're used to seeing in a comic, yeah. right? So the better thing, the better way for these artists to do work would mm-hmm. be to now, especially because graphic novels are such a thing. Yeah work for a few years on a on the entire book and yeah. then release it as a whole because then you can take your time yes. or you can you don't have to be on that monthly schedule I yeah think. absolutely and and like it's it, it's funny because you do have artists like that 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 do take forever and then you have artists that i would consider equally as good but with different styles that are releasing stuff on a monthly basis and i mean i i Fiona Staples, who draws Saga, is a great example of an artist who has a, a fantastic photorealistic style, but it's very minimal, minimalist. Yeah. And so she's able to put out comics on a regular basis. So I think it's hard to compete because there are artists like that out there that are able to do a level of quality that I think is on par with J. Scott Campbell, but that because of the virtues of their style are able to actually hit deadlines. Yep, and, and the editor- editors out. will always go with those guys. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. So and Jason, then, but but then they use J. Scott Campbell for their variant artists because yeah. they have well, because they sell yeah. the comics, right? Yep, I mean, when you sure. when you put a J. Scott Campbell illustration on the cover of a comic, yeah. people notice it and they definitely. Buy it, so, well, you can't help but notice it. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's it's pretty in your face. Uh, there, there's a lot in Danger Girl, uh, going back and revisiting that. Uh, I, it's it, like I, I said earlier that it's exploitative uh, in its nature, and it's uh, it's it's a little bit tasteless at times. Uh, yeah, there's a few moments where it's like, what's the contrivance to get these characters naked again? Yep, definitely like the um, hot tub scene and stuff. Yeah, yeah. For sure. and there's a lot of behaviors that I would not expect to see real women partake in, like. Uh, like it's it's sort of that slumber party pillow fight mentality that yeah. guys have mm-hmm. that like when when you put three beautiful women in a room the the, the only logical 
place for that to go <laughs> is them stripping down to their underwear and fighting each other, right. like play fighting, right? Because it's a it's a male fantasy, and and Danger Girl is for better or worse just a, a yep. male fantasy played out through a through a comic book. Yeah. So it's that idea that that I. Uh, well, and all uh, these of the, girls are hanging out on this boat in their underwear. Yeah, and all of the men in this book, yeah, are horny. Like the yes. every single one of them. There's not one in there except maybe Deuce, but I think for him, he get he, there's a little bit of that too. But yeah. they they all, um, there's nothing more to their characters than leering and making maybe those, Major Maximoff, but oh yeah, <laughs> only, well, isn't only he like a robot or an alien he, yeah, or something? He's like a, yeah. <laughs> But even like the old the doctor uh, the the mad scientist doctor yeah. has to stick in his and when I'm through with you I'm gonna fondle you or something he yeah. makes one comment like that I was like yeah well all of all of this stuff that in 2014 <laughs> now we know better and yeah, that, that's yeah. that's grossly inappropriate and yeah. and it's not uh, but I think that also plays to the satire yeah. aspect of the book as well yeah absolutely so have you read any more Danger Girl any of the newer stuff I have uh, I think that there were. There have been about four or five miniseries after the fact, um, but I think I read the first two, and I don't think that I've... I haven't really kept up with it. And Campbell's not involved, really, yeah. except for um, the odd cover, I assume, but Andy Hartnell, I think, wrote... Yes, he did, yeah. Good... So, uh, I I think I think Back in Black is the second one. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I definitely read that. Uh, I read that in issues when it was coming out. And there's another one after that, and did that they I hold up as well? Uh, yeah, I mean they 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 were definitely much smaller stories. Um, the the second one uh, is uh, sort of like a, a motorcycle gang. And I don't remember if there ended up being anything supernatural in it, or if it was just like a like a drug smuggling ring of uh, of of motorcycle gangs or something like that. But I can I remember. Them like a uh, uh, sort of easy rider style yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, cross country motorcycle escapades, and and that Chicks was on what, bikes. Yeah, <laughs> like it. It was it was definitely like a, a new send up. It wasn't it wasn't like they took another Indiana Jones or James Bond story and tried to do that. Okay. They went in a totally different direction. Oh, with that's that interesting. Um, and I'd have to dig up the issues to really to really look at that again but uh but yeah i mean it, it did it, it it does continue and it's still a property that exists i don't think that they've done anything in a little while but uh it, it it's all right it's not nothing's ever been as good as that as this first volume yeah um as far as like the tightness of the story and how cinematic it was yeah well, if you are a fan of Danger Girl or you are mildly interested and want to check it out, IDW released recently this the deluxe edition, which yeah. is beautiful, oversized hardcover. Yeah, you um, found yours for a dollar at, at, <laughs> at a garage sale. Yeah, or you whatever. probably spent forty. And I spent fifty dollars on bucks, mine. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's it's, it's oversized great. and the yeah. paper's quality is great. They it re, it's reproduced really nice. Yeah. There's a silk bookmark in there, uh, or not yeah. silk cloth bookmark, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, well, and then it's got, it's got like all of the variant covers and all of the sketchbook pages that were produced, um, and a bunch of, uh, yeah, there you go. Black, back in black. There it is right there. Oh yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and a bunch of art from other, other artists, as well as sort of like the the pop culture history that it's, that it's taken on. So there's actually pages of of, cosplay of cosplayers. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, and there's a page showing all four action figures that they released. Oh, and yeah. uh, I'm very proud to say that I had the Sydney Savage action figure because she's my favorite Danger Girl. Um, and I, uh, uh, but I'm ashamed to say that I, I I've since sold it because they were really poorly made. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, I think they were done by McFarlane Toys. I think they were too. Yeah, and uh, I, I, McFarlane Toys, uh, are fantastic or were I should say because they're not anymore, but they were fantastic. They're sitting then on a shelf for for being like super super detailed. Yeah, just having this excellent uh, quality of craftsmanship when it comes to the to the actual sculpt. But the materials that were used were not suitable oh, really? for for what they are. Which, like, you can use those materials to make action figures for Batman figures or or uh, Star Wars figures that are poseable. But if you're basically making a plastic statue and you make it out of the the sort of uh, soft resin, uh, the soft uh, vinyls that that they make you know, uh, like a Star Wars figure out of, yeah. uh, what you end up with is, is, a, a, a very tall, leggy Sydney Savage that will start to lean to the <laughs> left a little bit. Right. And, yeah. uh, and, and as, th- as time goes on, that little tiny lean will turn into a significant gravity. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden she won't have ankles anymore. Um, and it'll, it looks like somebody liquefied the bones from her kneecaps down. Oh, great. Um, and you sold her that like that? I, no, I got rid of her before she got <laughs> oh, to that okay. point. Um, yeah, uh, when she started to lean too much, I took it all apart and, and put it away. And then when I was uh, I, culling my collection at one point, I went, you know what? You're never going back up. So Yeah, uh, yeah so I, 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 I traded her in at my local comic book store and, uh, you know. Probably got a nice transformer or something. Uh, yeah, I got some. I'm sure I got some. I probably probably paid for this, but <laughs> I something like that. But yeah. Well, that's uh, let's let's move on to your pick. Well, yeah, Crimson. I so Crimson has the uh, the the I don't know if I'd call it distinguished because it's just my personal opinion, but um, it definitely has has a place in my collection and in my uh, in my mind as uh my favorite comic book series ever of all time uh, and it is yeah you call it very influential yeah yeah it's uh it is probably the the comic that has been the most influential on me not just in my own art but as a human being like just a, as a person i huh. uh, and uh, it, it's a lot of it is the time in my life when i started reading it i uh, it, it, it i was in the ninth grade so that's sort of that, that period where you really start to cement who you are as a person. And there was a lot of stuff in it that I, I sort of brought back old old uh, uh, ideas and concepts, uh, but made them, I don't know, relatable again. Um, and, and I'm talking a lot about the sort of religious overtones yeah. in Crimson. So Crimson is a story about uh, a, a teenager, 16-year-old Alex Elder, who uh, one night while he's out with his buddies, they're attacked by a motorcycle gang of vampires nice. in Central Park. And uh, all of Alex's friends are killed, except for him. Uh, he's he's spared at the last moment, uh, and uh, unfortunately for him, bit. yeah, becomes a vampire because yeah. uh, he was bit in the attack. Um, he's taken in by this mysterious figure 
named Echimus, who is a Gregori, which, I, I, depending on your Christian mythology, can mean a couple of different things. In this mythology, the uh, Gregori are basically the precursors to humans. They were created by God before God created human beings. Like his first trial. Yeah, but they didn't have souls, so their morality was askew, and so God scrapped them and created human beings. Um so Echimus is the last of, of his kind and uh, has sort of uh, fallen into this this uh, position. Kind of, He's almost Alex's Obi-Wan Kenobi, but he's a little bit reluctant, as is Alex, to being uh, what Echimus refers to as the Chosen One. Uh, in, in this first volume, we only scratch the surface of this stuff. So I'll, I'll talk mostly about the first volume. But there's going to be sort of overtones of, of the whole series, which is a 24-issue series. Uh, and as it goes, it gets better and better and better and better. Um, up until a point where that last volume is just full of so much great stuff. Um, now, much like Danger Girl, this is a little bit dated. Uh, the, the dialogue in particular, especially in that first volume, is very rough. Uh, it's It's... Uh, it's funny because I will say that it's my favorite comic book series of all time, but at the same time, I'm going to compare it to uh, to Powers, <laughs> where it has that that similar stuttery, um, you know, slang sort of uh, interspersed into it, where all of the characters talk in these these unique vernaculars, um, and it takes you out of it a little bit. Uh, sometimes I wish especially that, that one um, the lead of biker whatever her name yeah, is yeah yeah Rose the puppet oh yeah, uh, yeah she yeah. she speaks in like a, a sort of a, a Jamaican I guess like a Rastafarian yeah, almost yeah. Uh, a dialect and so it, so you'll oftentimes have to read a word bubble twice to get the gist of what she's saying right like to sort of like yeah. run it through the filter and be like oh the accent she's actually yeah. not. The words as they are written are not the words that she's saying, more or less, right? And that um, that totally takes you out. I remember yeah. when they, in the nineties, in the middle <clears throat> mid nineties, they really tried to, like phonetically, um, write out Banshee's Irish accent. Yeah. And I like I can't even. This is I can't even read this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I can just I I'd rather them just put it normal and me put it in my head. Yeah. Like yeah. I can hear it in my head. So. That's the thing. Uh, going back to Danger Girl, Sydney Savage is Australian, and at no point does she say "Good day, mate." Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's so much better than if she was, you know, telling people to put shrimp on the Barbie and stuff like that. <laughs> like it allows you to just like put that on yourself. And and uh, same with Natalia Castle, who's Russian, so she'll say things hers, every once in a while. Yeah, and hers, they put a little bit of that. Yeah, it'll there, come through but. because of sort of her, her manner of speaking. But uh, nothing like in Crimson, where, where there are a handful of characters in the first two volumes that really have their own unique way of speaking. But it, it, halfway, I'm halfway through the second volume now, um, as I sort of read back through everything. And that starts to slowly fade away. Um, and uh, But uh, getting back to the first volume, uh, it, it, as I said, it's a little bit rough. Uh, the dialogue is a little bit rough. The, the, the characters are not very fleshed out in the beginning. They're, they're, I wouldn't even call them archetypes. 
at that point. They they just feel like, um, I don't know, like just these the, the it's in a it was an attempt to write something unique, but what you end up with is just these really odd characters who just say what they're thinking all the time like sort of huh. say how they're feeling well um, yeah and there's not a lot of subtlety to it alex in the first issue is talking about how he's going through a dark phase right and <laughs> and i mean like you know he's 16 years old and 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 maybe i'm i'm not remembering being 16 uh well enough uh, and maybe maybe i did walk around telling people that i was going through a dark phase or how i was feeling but it seems just a little bit too on the nose for me, but like I said, it goes away after the first six issues. Uh, after after that that initial volume, um, well, that's and, good. And as the series goes on, well, and part of the those issue, undertones are there, but but they're they're subtext rather than being overt. Part of the issue with Alex's character is that he's a brand new character yeah. after three pages of the story. Yeah, um, and he's no longer who he used to be. Yeah. So. Um, it, it's like you're trying to introduce a character that has a backstory, but once you introduce this character here, it's like he's a different, completely different character from what he used to be. So there's that, there's this, um, like you don't know, how he, well, I mean, he doesn't know how to view himself, so you don't really yeah. know how to view him either. Yeah. So yeah, um, and I guess, yeah, as, as the issues go on, he learns about himself and you learn about him, and then he, yeah. of course, he becomes a more defined character. So I'm glad that that happens. I, um, I, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was, uh, um, the thing I really liked is that in this first volume that has six issues, it's two story arcs Mm -hmm. that were three issues each. Um, I thought that was great. And I voiced this before I'm, I'm tired of comic books that, that are so like the story arcs are so sweeping that you have to read whatever and, um, I don't know. It was nice. Potentially was, three different series in order to get the whole yeah. story. So it was nice that um, that the, there are over there are, there are things that carry over um, through the different story arcs. But three issues to tell a decent story was good. A decent yeah. origin story, and then another three issues to introduce this new character, Scarlet, and and that was nice too. And I think that it was, uh, yeah, it was just a nice a nice change. Something that that I wasn't expecting, but it was well. It was it was good. Um, I'm on the fence about about his artwork. Yeah. Um, and I always have been. Um, he's he's decent. He does a, a good job of of uh, putting his details, but I find that often he, he's hard to read. Um, yeah. Like it doesn't visually tell the story as I as as I think it should. Um, whereas J. Scott Campbell, for instance, is great at showing the like telling the story through through yeah. the pictures. Um, and there are just some weird, um, weird choices with his, uh, layouts that, that confuse me and stuff like that. Like there's one page, I think in one of the later, like issue five or six, where there's so much negative space that, um, like he could have laid that out better. I, I'm not sure there, I think the issue six was full of that. I wasn't sure why there was so much wasted space. There. Yeah, the, I there. There's a few issues throughout the series where you see him have to quickly finish an issue. I guess I maybe that's it because uh, he to, his to schedule was much more regular. He was the only one out of the initial cliffhanger crew to actually like yeah. hit deadlines on a regular basis. Even though like his stuff, I don't think was monthly. 
all the time, but it was monthly some of the time. Well, and I looked at that too, and he was monthly for the first seven issues, the first six issues, and then yeah. after that he would miss the odd one maybe every third month or so, yeah. but that's still a far cry from uh, the other the other two. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, he was good. And I was flipping through this, and I, I just want to make one note before someone online blasts us. Sandra Hope was the inker. Oh, uh, she was not, the inker, not sorry. Not the colorist. Um, badass was the colorist. Oh, okay. okay. So, just I was to, wrong on that. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, tell me about the, the second issue, or the second volume. Um, what? Uh, so, the, the second volume is where the story actually starts to get interesting. Okay. Um, it kicks off in issue seven, which is my favorite issue of the whole series, where uh, it takes place on Christmas Eve. Uh, Alex goes into a diner um, and uh, and w- when he's sitting in this diner with a couple of other people that, you know, uh, the type of people that would be in a diner on Christmas Eve. So, sort of all sorts of uh, walks of life, that sort of story. Uh, and where it takes a really cool turn is when uh, these two guys walk through the door and start talking about people in the room as if they know everything about them. And they're very judgmental. Uh, and, uh, and when the third guy arrives, you start to finally put it together. Uh, the third guy is Michael. And uh, you oh. figure out that they're angels. Okay. And that they're there to judge Alex. Um, and sort of to, to put him on, on trial for, uh, the atrocities that he may one day commit because of the amount of power that he has. As I sort of alluded to before, he's, uh, refers to him as a chosen one and he's a, he's sort of a new breed of vampire that has like new abilities. So not just, uh, not just your classic blood sucking and, uh, and, uh, uh, aversion to to sunlight, but he can he can outright fly, and uh, and he he's basically a, a pyrokinetic, so he can yeah. control flame, um, and and just make flame out of thin air. Um, and knowing where the series goes, especially when you look at issue seven, and how uh, how the the these angels talk about. Alex and his future you can tell that that Brian Augustine and Humberto Ramos they knew where they were going they knew the story that they were going to tell they they had a beginning middle and an end Um, and I don't know that they knew exactly how long they were going to take to get there that I don't know that they had 24 issues as a plan but uh, but you can tell that there is a an end game for the series and uh, and and it, it it's never more apparent than it is in that issue because they talk about uh, the pl- the part that he's going to play in in the, in the upcoming conflict and all sorts of stuff. Um, but it it just it's got this uh, this really cool flow to it uh, where it's almost it's kind of a, like a bottle episode. Uh, of a TV series. Um, And that's one of the things that I love about Crimson the most is that each issue really plays as an episode of a TV show. Right, rather than a movie. Yeah, Yeah. so I would never want to see Crimson made as a movie. But I do think that it would be a fantastic HBO series. And if, if, if I had the ability to option it and produce it as an HBO series, I think that it could be really popular, especially considering they just finished True Blood. So they, they need a new vampire series. (laughs) Um, but I, uh, issue seven is also the moment when you, uh, I mean, the first issue, 
also it starts basically with Genesis, right? It starts at the beginning of the Bible and sort of explaining how God created the earth. Now, it also goes into a lot of detail to talk about dragons and their part in that. And like we said, the which is from um, the book of Ehud. Yes. So it is based on, it also is based on ancient texts from that biblical yeah. era but just not the the bible parts yeah so yeah. Ap- apocrypha and yeah and such so which is neat that they kind yeah. of stick that in there. yeah it shows that that there's a, a a lot of knowledge that went into it into the mythology of it yeah um and and issue seven is really the first time that that it becomes apparent how much that mythology is actually going to play into okay. it. okay um because you get these uh, uh seven archangels who who put him on trial and they all have these different personalities uh and uh i'll just spoil the issue Uh um (laughs) because this is the hook for me this is the moment that the series went from being interesting to being a must read and to being my favorite comic book series of all time i the angels are basically ready to 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 kill alex um, for, for, like I said, the atrocities that he may commit because of the amount of power that he wields. Um, he hasn't done anything wrong yet. If anything, he's been a hero up until this point, sort of a reluctant hero. But it's at that point when Michael brings out the sword of truth and he's about to pass judgment and, uh, and, and kill Alex that in walks one more angel and it's, uh, it's Lucifer and he comes in and he's like, hey, don't I get a vote? Because uh, he was one of the archangels at one point. And, and the rest of them are all like, oh, no, you lost your vote when you fell. And he's like, oh, that's, that's, I, I don't see where that's written anywhere. So I, as yeah, far as yeah. I'm concerned, I'm going to vote for, huh. for Alex. Yeah. And that puts it at a stalemate. Okay. So basically Satan shows up yeah. and saves our hero. <laughs> Weird. And it was... And I mean, I would later learn that that I, I, Brian Augustine and Humberto Ramos were sort of taking a, 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 a page out of other comics that already existed um, in making Lucifer a sympathetic character. Yeah. Because uh, there's kind of been in the in the what like the late eighties, early nineties, there'd been a couple of different comics. That I think a couple well, of different well, the stories, late eighties when they say. loosened up on the comic codes. Yeah, yeah, Lucifer came out a lot. Yeah, and 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 he started being played as this uh, sympathetic character, um, but it was the first time that I was ever exposed to that that idea that 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 the devil isn't a, a guy in red pajamas with a pitchfork and horns. Uh, that that he was once an angel, and that uh, really at the end of the day, he's just doing his job. Somebody has to rule hell. Somebody has to be in charge of that. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, Lucifer is the one to do it, right? Uh, and a lot of it is alluding to uh, to to John Milton's Paradise Lost, right? Like right. that sort of the 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 story of how Lucifer fell and became the king of hell and and the devil that we know and all of that sort of thing. Um, and so, when when that happens and Lucifer shows up. That's the turning point for me in the series where where they went from this sort of weird... And it's like it's a lot like a TV series that has its first few episodes to establish your characters. And then at a certain point when we're comfortable with our main characters and we know our cast, uh, especially once they introduce Scarlet, then we can go, okay, now it's time to tell a story. Right, yeah. And so that's the moment where it happens. 
And Alex leaves the, the, the diner, and as he leaves, he encounters this little girl that he met at the, at the beginning of the, the issue that was selling roses, um, uh, just like sort of out on, on Christmas Eve in, in the, the snow selling roses to people. And, uh, and, and he has an interaction with her where he basically shows how pure heart uh, of a character he is, right? And uh, and it and Lucifer walks out of the diner after him, and recognizes this little girl as God, right? Oh, and yeah. that the whole thing is sort of playing out as part of God's design. That it's all like everything's happening exactly as it should. And if if he felt like he needed to, or if God, I shouldn't say he or she, if if it felt like it needed to intervene and save Alex it could at any time right but but knowing that the plan is the plan and that lucifer is going to show up save alex and then everything else in the series is going to play out i mean like at eight, <laughs> being in the ninth grade being at that age uh it was the first time that i'd ever been exposed to anything like that hmm. and it was the first time that i'd ever been exposed to religious material being taken seriously uh, not, not being a hokey trying to convert you kind of way. Yeah. Not, not, you know, Sunday school, I, uh, I uh, Noah on a boat with a bunch of giraffes and lions and whatever. Right. Um, and not, you know, I, I, a, a preacher telling everybody that they're sinners, but an actual, um, an actual sort of, uh, scriptural message under like sort of as subtext underneath the whole story of the comic with this incredible Christian mythology as your setting. Right. So bringing angels and vampires and werewolves and very similar to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I think very inspired by that. Um, but bringing all of that stuff together in this very epic story that they, I don't know, it just, it, it, uh, being someone who was raised Christian and and uh, and having that that sort of religious mythology in the back of my head at all times, but never really connecting the dots between a vampire and Christianity, <laughs> even yeah. though like like it's it's in the it's in all the famous literature that you know if, if you if you if you encounter a vampire, you can hold them off with a cross and right yeah like yeah. you know that that there are religious components to those. To a lot of those, which stories. is bunk in this one, that that yeah, that yeah. thing doesn't it, that yeah that specifically thing. is 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 sort of taken out, but um, but just like like putting those those connections together and 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 tying those threads together, yeah, and making me realize that oh wait there's there's a there's a much bigger picture here than than I ever thought uh in particular when it comes to christianity and 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 that religion and uh it's really it's when i i i developed the the ideal or or the 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 belief that i uh whenever i'm confronted by by friends who are atheists or or i uh, are particular non-believers uh in anything and they want to just say that that science is the only thing uh, my my response to that, it never wins them over because then they just look down on me after I say it. But my response <laughs> is always like, look, you can choose to live in a world where dragons and angels and all of those sorts of things are impossible. Or you can choose to live in a world where there's just the slightest chance 
that it fits into your belief system and that there's some shred of truth to that mythology and to those legends and to those stories. And as an artist, uh, I don't know, maybe that's where it comes from. Maybe it's that creative side, but I would much rather live in a world where there's just that little tiny bit of possibility for that sort of fantastic, uh, amazing stuff to be truth. Right. And so that, that ties back into, into, uh, uh, scripture and religion and everything where, um, uh, I'm I'm not about to start, you know, I, I walking around saying I'm a creationist or something, because because I definitely believe in uh, in in science and and evolution and all that sort of stuff. But I uh, that all of those stories have within them these seeds of truth. That's that it, Crimson is the reason why I hold that belief, which is funny that it's a comic book. Yeah, yeah. That would put that into my head but it was like i say the age that i was when i read it and the ideas that are contained inside that book so as you get further into the series you get into volumes uh uh, three and four that stuff it just every volume every three issues or so it just ramps up and up and up until the the final story like the final arc of it is basically the war for earth right now i don't want you to give anything away but is it a satisfying ending uh i think so and i mean like i'm reading through it again for the first time in probably about 10 or 12 years since it came out yeah so um i don't i i it's gonna take me a little while before before i I, well, uh, I, I, I can definitively say I'll report back after I finish yeah, reading. Give us again. an update. But I think so. from what I recall, yes, it, 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 it was satisfying. I was, I was happy with the ending at the time. It, it, it is definitely a finale to the story. Yeah. So it, if you're looking for a comic that has an endpoint that, that is a concise story, uh, then Crimson is a good one. And, and, uh, I think, Historically, because of who Humberto Ramos is now and the role that he plays at Marvel and and uh, in the comics industry, I think it's a really important comic for people to read to see an artist really at the beginning of their career. I mean, like I know he did Impulse before this and did a little bit of Young Justice. And, and uh, X Nation twenty ninety nine. Okay, yeah, which um, is like I don't know four issues or something maybe. Um, so he had a he he definitely had a career before Crimson, but, but everyone does before they yeah. have their breakout. But this it. is this is his, like I think this is his masterpiece, right? Like I, yep. I, I, I out there was his follow up, and then he's got a four issue or a six issue miniseries called Revelations, which goes back to his uh, like the religious overtones uh, of of actually both both titles, both Crimson and Out There. Hmm. Um, which uh, both have very um, crimson more so than than out there, but um, he's got he's he's got a lot of the, these titles that he's done like that. But crimson is is really like his heart and soul on paper. I think uh, more than as as great as his stuff is with spider-man is because well uh, i i mean that's it's debatable but but i no, no, I, I mean, love his spider-man yeah stuff, his spider-man stuff is great too but it's um you're working with a franchise character yeah. so it's yeah. gonna be different yeah. yeah um and and I mean, he definitely got to put his own uh his own stamp on spider-man with with uh with uh, the big time storyline where he got to create i think three different 
Spider-Man suits, Spider-Man oh, yeah. costumes, and then especially recently with Spectacular, where he he's the one who is responsible for that. Uh, the now we have that visual style for uh, Superior Spider-Man yeah. when he's both Spider-Man and when he's Peter Parker, which is that that cool uh, uh, mad scientist sort of look that he has when he's Peter Parker and he's working in the lab with the big goggles yeah, and the lab yeah. coat and everything. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like Crimson is is a really important comic to me. It's very uh, uh, special, which is why I've got the 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 volumes which i'm uh indebted to you forever for uh for pointing out that craigslist ad so that i could pick those up from from a guy who kept them he read them once and put them on the shelf which is exactly how i take care of my comics so uh they are in pristine condition uh and then i have the whole one to to 24 issue run uh of, of the series um i wish that i had first printings of all of them i don't i have oh. i have a couple of like second and third printings i think yeah i noticed some um, variant covers so yeah but i uh, <clears throat> but i do have i have a variant cover for issue seven it's the only one that i have two copies of um and i have the the dynamic forces which I, they're still around but they're it's not as big of a deal as it used to be but i have that like sealed in in a oh in yeah a, in a case with the rest of my collection because it is like I've said a few times now, it's a very important comic to me, specific, like particular issue, a specific issue. Which Dynamic Forces cover do you have? Uh, the one where he's sitting in front of the statue with all the snow. Um, I think it might be the one because uh, that was the that that first cover is the one that they the one that they show in the the trade is the actual printed cover. Yeah, that's the that's the Dynamic Forces one. Yeah, it's a nice he's, cover. He's sitting in Central Park. I think it's an Alice in Wonderland statue that's in Central Park. Right. Uh, and oh, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's sitting right. in front of it. Mm-hmm. Covered um, in snow. Yeah, that's yeah. Nice. So I, I have that that issue uh, in my collection. It's probably the only like actual collectible, collectible comic book that I own. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Picked up on a trip to Victoria one day. When cool. Was, I think Cherry Bomb Comics. Yeah. Something like that. But yeah. Um, so I don't know. Do you have anything to add to, to, to our talk about Crimson? Well, I don't think so. I'm, the only thing is that um, after reading the first volume, I could take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the feeling I got. I, I certainly enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't one that I am compelled to read more. But based on your recommendation, um, yeah. I'll probably, once you're finished with your second volume, maybe I'll borrow that. Yeah. I've got, you can take the issues. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, yeah, it was certainly a, it it's a, it wasn't a drag to read so. <laughs> yeah, and, and it get, it gets better. It yeah. it, it, yeah. it it gets uh, better by leaps and bounds every couple of issues, um, especially like as a lot of TV shows that uh, when they get their end date on yeah. a serialized TV show, um, they know where they're going and That's they good. start yeah. pulling they towards the the finale of the series. Yeah. Right? And I'm I'm happy that it's it has a limited number of issues. Yeah. Yeah, that always makes me happy. <laughs> cool. Well, with that, let's uh, let's jump into our last book, and uh, our our final book is maybe the most troubling out of the the initial three probably uh, cliffhanger series, and that's Battle Chasers. Uh, and Matthew Campbell, our good friend, sent in uh, uh, this suggestion, and he writes, "I have a suggestion for you guys, which may be more of a challenge." I wanted to suggest my all-time favorite comic, Battle Chasers. 
I know that Battle Chaser is not written by one of the ama uh, many amazing writers around today, but it is a romping good time and a blast to read. The hard part about reading this book is getting your hands on it. Yep. <laughs> the comic was published under the cliffhanger branch of Wildstorm Comics in the late 90s. The awesome Joe Madarera, a.k.a. Joe Mad, is the artist and creator of the short-lived series, which only lasted nine issues over a four-year period. There is a trade called Battle Chasers, A Gathering of Heroes, which collects issues one to five, and there was a recent hardcover, which contains all the issues of the series. Uh, like I previously said, the series isn't much, but what is there is a great time. Battle Chasers is a fantasy adventure following a young girl named Gully and her search for her lost father. The story just about hits every fantasy story cliche there is, but if you love uh, Legend of Zelda, D&D, or Final Fantasy, you'll love Battle Chasers. The only sad part is that the series is left uh, unfinished to this day, but Battle Chasers fans uh, still hope that Joe Mad will pick it up again. If nothing else, just look at the awesome pencil work from Joe Mad, and that's from Matthew Campbell. Uh, yeah, this series is the one of the that that era that that was sort of the most. Uh, I think it was the most talked about. Yeah, but uh, it's the one that I never read. So uh, I was reading it for the first time, um, and uh, and I can see why Matt holds it in such high esteem. Uh, I wouldn't actually say that the story is is bad by any stretch. I think the story is really tight. It's really good. Um, it was obviously going somewhere, and it had a whole world to explore that it never got to. But I, but the story itself, I think, is it, it, like the the world that's created, um, and the the backstory of all the characters that's apparent from from issue one, uh, is is deep and fascinating, and it's a fantasy world that I want to explore. It is a shame that in those nine issues we don't get any finality. We kind yeah. of get the first arc come to a close by the end of those nine issues, but. At the same time, it, that first arc was the beginning of an adventure, right? So, I, I like Matt says, if anything, we have Joe Madera's incredible art to 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 yeah. keep us. But and that's the ones that's the selling point for sure. Yeah. As with any of these titles, yes. um, that the art stands out. And uh, um, yeah, what a great artist this guy yeah. is! He's, He's incredible. He his layouts are fantastic. He yeah. he does a, a really great job of of his storytelling through his yeah. pictures visually um, is detailed, but also clear to read. Yeah. And um, I'm a big fan of Chris Pacello and he did another cliffhanger book called steampunk. Yeah. Um, but that one is so, it's so hard to keep track of where the, what the action is that mm. uh, I, it, that's his downfall. He's got, he draws some beautiful pictures, but um, his storytelling is not the best, but but Joe Mad is is a great storyteller. Yeah. Um, I I have an issue with the story because okay. <laughs> um, while while the story itself was fine, I found that um, he just he he introduced too many characters yes. in nine issues. Um, every issue introduced a new one, and it was yeah. like here's the bad guy, and now here's the better bad guy, here's the bigger bad guy, and and it kept going up without really resolving. Um, any of the past bad guys or anything like that, and, yeah. and and then also the the characters, the good guy characters, they kept introducing them and then taking them to a new place, like because they're on this quest. Yeah. So they travel from place to place, 
and in each place they had the past history there yeah. that we don't know about. <laughs> Um, and then they'd, they'd not t- really tell us about the past history. They'd hint yeah. to it, and then they'd move on to the next place where they have past history and not tell us about that either. And I found that just kind of tiring. And maybe that's because there's only nine issues. But I kind of would have liked, even in those nine issues, to learn a little bit more mm-hmm. about why there's the past history. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that, that uh, uh, Matterer was inspired by, by Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. In, in that idea of of dropping you at the beginning of a story that's really the middle of the story. And I have no problem with that. Yeah. I think that's a great <clears throat> storytelling device as yeah. well. Um, but you got to give us a little I th- bit. I think, I think that that's a problem because it is nine issues. Because it wasn't. It didn't continue from there. And and I think... Because like, that's, that's kind of what I'm looking at when I read it. Is the potential of what he was trying to do. Yeah. And, and I think like, I agree with you. I think that you're absolutely a hundred percent right. That, that each issue was, it is like a lot of video games these days that have like a codex or, or a glossary or like an appendix of, uh, you know, like text that you can go through and read the background. Yeah, you and all shouldn't these different have to characters. have that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a lot like that where like every, like you said, everywhere they went, there was a backstory to, to that location and to that part of the world. But, to me, um, that that although the plot was very thin, because the plot itself is just uh, uh, Goli's father has been missing for a long time, yeah, uh, and uh, and and now uh, the bad guys are looking for basically his source of power, which was these pair of gloves that that as we discovered made him indestructible and gave him the super strength and everything that he had to yeah. to be the the hero that he was which is fascinating why is he missing then yeah yeah, yeah. so um yeah but there's all uh, there it, there it's alluded to and we never get an answer on it but it's alluded to the fact that there's a price to pay for wearing those gloves right right um and and uh and maybe maybe a little bit of of uh the the main villain in those first nine issues his backstory sort of points to where that was going yeah uh, it was sort of this dual identity aspect of uh of of aramis uh, uh gully's father uh but so like this is the thing is that is that like a good star wars story or like Lord of the Rings continues to be, even though it's really only, let's say, four books if you're going to include The Hobbit. Um, but five if you want to include The Silmarillion. Um, there's so much to talk about, even though there's so little story, really, yeah. at the end of the day. They're, they're, yeah. they're, every, every new piece of information is just more questions right. than answers. Right? And because the series ended and there's... Yeah. I would say very little chance that we'll get yeah, more. Um, that makes the book pretty frustrating. Hon- honestly, <laughs> I I don't even know what Joe Matterer is up to these days. I know that he was working on the the Darksiders video game series, which right. was another yeah. one of like sort of his creative yeah. brainchild. He's kind of gone more to video games. Like that's yeah. where his concentration's yeah. gone. He's and a- and I think I think if there is any hope for Battle Chasers, it's that we'll get it in a video game. Yeah, and I think that Darksiders may have started that way. That okay. that that initially that when he went to whatever studio he went to, that he went there with the idea of let's finish Battle Chasers or let's let's get Battle Chasers off the ground with a video game, and they went no, let's do something new instead, right? right? Um, and so there's sort of a compromise there, but 
um, if if we have any hope, it's not going to be seeing the rest of this series in a comic book. It's going to be seeing it as a video game. Yeah, I think because that you're right. That's where he's gone. But it's also like he's also kind of just like dropped off the face of the earth because Darksiders was owned by THQ, I think, and was when THQ went out of business was sold off to another company. Uh, and I think EA might have bought it. Somebody bought the property Darksiders, and so it's sitting with them. And it was supposed to be a four-game series because uh-huh. the first game you play as uh, the Horseman of War, and the second game oh. you play as the Horseman of Death. So there should have been two more. So there should have been two more games in the series. Yeah. And so I think where he is at right now might be trying to get those other two games made. Yeah. But I, I personally i think the dark siders is really lame i i think the gameplay was terrible and the, the story was <laughs> was i uh, i uh, boring at its best um and i would much rather see him abandon dark siders and go back to battle chasers because i i very quickly fell in love with the world that he was yeah in. well and his characters gully is is really fascinating yeah. um in her innocence and not so innocence as well mm-hmm. like the, and the fact that she's got those gauntlets was um with the price to pay and all that yeah the uh the golem is really cool too yeah um what it um and that's your typical i'm a robot and i need to learn how to feel this is the tin man of, right like yeah. it's it it is um there is a wizard of oz i was gonna say alice in wonderland as well yeah, yeah. um but uh yeah there is that sense of um of yeah being transported to another world and going on your epic journey and yeah wherever that takes you with your colorful cast of characters. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like his characters. The Like, yeah, it's the only, the only thing is that I felt like the storytelling um, could have given us a little bit more. Yeah. It could, it could yeah. have been a little bit more encapsulated. And I can't imagine reading this um, when it first came out. Yeah. When you'd only get 22 pages whenever he got around to it. <laughs> There's another one. Yeah. Like, yeah, it took two four years to get nine issues like that's yeah that's hard to keep up like your fan base really suffers because of yeah that. yeah it was and that i i can remember at the time that was the reason why i never jumped onto it because the the comic shop owner warned me that like yeah battle chasers is really cool but uh he hasn't put an issue out for like however many months it was yeah and uh and and there's no word of when the next yeah. issue is coming so you're and i remember comics. <laughs> i remember at that time in previews yeah. You'd get the solicit for his new issue. Yeah, every month, <laughs> like the same issue for months, because it, it, I promise I'll get it out. But no, yeah. it didn't come out this month. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's a hard way. And I think ultimately that's uh, that's why Cliffhanger suffered. I think so much. I think it shows uh, the the one weakness of Image as a company, in that when you when you spin off imprints and and it's all creator owned then it is up to that creator to hit deadlines. Right. And because yeah. uh, Joe Maderera, he worked for Marvel. Like I said, he, he had worked on X-Men. Uh, and uh, he'd actually did, done quite a lot on X-Men. I think he'd done like three or four arcs. He revived quite a bit of X-Men in the yeah. 90s. And he, yeah. was, he, he went through Age of Apocalypse. Yeah. Like that was and, his stuff. And uh, there was a, an excellent arc uh, uh, about the Shi'ar Empire where yep. the X-Men went to space and... And didn't he uh, play with? Space, um, I should say. Was he was he involved when Magneto 
was a good guy for a while. Yes. And he was the driving force behind Magneto's look as a good guy. That that right. point in the '90s when Magneto took the helmet off. Yeah, and he had the and, long hair, and, and, he had the long hair and, uh, and 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 the fact, gloves. He, <laughs> he defined a lot of their characters' <clears throat> yeah. costumes yeah. that had a lot of lasting effect. Um, yeah, like yeah, he was pretty influential in the X Men at that yeah. time. Um, so you can see that when he was working for Marvel, that even though uh, his style at the time was like it was light years beyond anybody else at that point well and it was also really influenced by japanese yeah, yeah. Um, manga which yeah. was only starting to scratch the surface yeah. in com- the comic book world at the time i think like dragon ball and sailor moon had come on tv but no one yeah. no one really knew about that that medium that people didn't know world. how deep that that but world he knew goes, but and it yeah. influenced his art quite yeah. a bit and he Absolutely. was a, i think a lot of uh, in a lot of ways a gateway to that becoming what it is now yes yeah 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 for sure but uh it it just goes to show that when he was with that with marvel he was able to keep a deadline and and keep his his art style in check uh but as soon as he was put on his own or he he went out to do his own comic book and he was his own boss yeah i he i think at the end of the day demanded too much of himself and that's the biggest problem is that he knew how good he was and so uh he 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 would take the time and he would like every single page in those nine issues is impeccable yeah it really right is. uh it's it's just even even more i would say than j scott campbell's danger girl which is fantastic by all accounts but battle chasers is every panel in battle chasers could be blown up and made into an individual piece of artwork Right, like you could make it a poster, and yeah. and that is it's it's downfall because that is just impossible to do as as a as a series as an ongoing series. Well, and the thing he has working against him also is that he's created a fantasy world, yeah, which is going to be I think harder to yeah. draw than the real world stuff that J. Scott Campbell does in Danger Girl. Yes, because um, he's relying on his own imagination yeah. and. <clears throat> He's, I'm gonna guess he's probably a perfectionist. Yeah. Um, he's never gonna live. Yeah, like you said, he's never gonna live up to his own stuff, and yep. that's why it takes so long. Yeah, which it is was, unfortunate. What he needed was an editor or or a, a somebody somebody cracking the whip, right, and saying yeah. like, "Stop, that panel's good. Move on to the next one." Right, yeah. like somebody looking over his shoulder and saying, "That's excellent. That's better than any other comic that's being done right now." Just keep going. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. isn't going to work if you can't release issues, right? And that's that's what eventually happened. And I think honestly, with the exception of Crimson, uh, that is what happened to to Cliffhanger. That that was their eventual undoing. Was these creators that were uh, at, at like when we're talking about the original three uh, creators that that were put together for Cliffhanger, uh, three of the best comic artists at the time. Yeah, doing their some of their best work of their career up yeah. until that point, um, and being just like sort of unleashed, right? But but that that huge asset was also their their biggest failure, um, and what they really needed was somebody at the helm saying, "Just put a comic book out." Yeah, we, like <laughs> we this isn't a good way of doing business because even when Humberto Ramos got to out there. 
uh, afterwards, uh, after he had finished Crimson, Out There was on a pretty intermittent release schedule. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot like like Crimson, he'd do three issues or four issues or five and issues, take a break. and then and then he'd fall behind, right? Yeah. But um, the the problem, the reason why that comic never caught on was because he put out the first issue then i think there was like a two-month gap until he put out the second issue and then the second issue came out and then it was like a month and a half before the third issue yeah you can't and uh, so, gain any momentum doing yeah that. yeah and so you can't you can't hold on to your readers if if you're not like people aren't going to remember three months later that they wanted to pick up issue two uh, especially yeah. back then i think was slightly different than it is now where now people uh, because of the way that we watch TV and the way that we consume media, people subscribe to things. They 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 put it on their list. They go to a place and well, they and say, Well, and I did that know, in this this 10 years ago as well when this stuff came I, out. I did, savers existed. You could go to your comic book store and, and get a box and, and yeah. put comics aside. But I do think that a lot of people were reading issue to issue, yeah. right? Um, because this was the beginning of the era of... of Graphic novels, right? So uh, that wasn't really a concept uh, uh, five years before these comics came out. Um, Which is why you have these Danger Girl issues that are... Um, yeah. You have what? What are they called? They're they're they. I the think that they're referred collection. to. Yeah, it's called the Dangerous Collection. But it's only um, two issues collected. It's two issues, so they're kind of like proto trade paperbacks. Yeah, and I'm thinking, what's the point in collecting yeah. two, two issues. issues? But they, yeah. that's what they do. It was it was for exactly the purpose that I bought them. I came into Danger Girl at issue four or five. Yeah, and issues one through. Through four, were, yeah, were yeah. impossible to find. So what they did was they went, okay, well, we'll just release them as, yeah. as these. Well, and uh, you need new issue. Danger Girl content if each issue, yeah. regular issue, is going to take six months. You exactly. got to publish something in the meantime. Exactly, and that's what that that was one thing that I think if there were executives at Image that were making calls that's like that, doing, that's yeah. what they were saying is like, look, let's put this out and and keep your your momentum going as you were saying. Yeah, but I. Uh, Ultimately, I don't think that it was enough because eventually Cliffhanger sort of dissolved, um, and, yeah. and those those comics just kind of disappeared. And well, because and there were of lots that, of them though, there were there were yeah that nobody's heard of yeah, but uh, yeah, didn't last very long. And yeah, I think um, maybe we should continue that conversation at Cliffhanger Part Two. Yes, uh, yeah. we don't need to get into that uh, <laughs> this time. Yeah, because we we do want to revisit some more because this is actually kind of a neat. Um, ongoing thing that we could do yeah yeah definitely so, uh yeah next time we'll we'll go to that kind of the the second wave yeah of yeah. uh and maybe do some more crimson as well yeah cool yeah well i i that's a good place to jump into our polls for next month and you want to go first with your poll sure yeah um i've chosen a book called button man which but just based on that title, I wouldn't ever pick up, but it had a pretty cool cover, so I um, I wanted to check it out. It's it's a story. Button Man is a term for um, Hitman, or yeah. like a kind of an assassin for hire, that kind of thing, um, in the UK. It's a, it's a phrase that's not usually used here. And this series, Button Man, is serialized in the comic uh, 2000 AD, which is the home of Judge Dredd. Okay. Um, and not much of 2000 AD stuff gets printed here in North America, 
except for Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. Um, but Button Man is one of them. <laughs> and so this, the particular one I have here, the collection is called Button Man Get Harry X. And Harry X is the main character. Um, and it collects the three, there are three Button Man stories. And this volume has all three of them. The premise of it is that this guy gets a phone call one day saying, um, there's someone that's going to kill you. You better um, you better watch yourself or you'll die. Hmm. And so, um, sure enough, that as soon as he hangs up the phone, the guy, there's a gunshot through his window. And this guy, um, Harry, is an uh, ex-Marine or something, I can't remember. So he knows how to take care of himself, but he mm-hmm. ends up being involved in a, like a... Um, like a Hunger Games type of gladi- gladiator events where um, the rich aristoc- aristocrats, aristocrats, sorry. <laughs> um, not, not the Disney Not the Disney the Aristocrats, they uh, hire people to try and kill each other. Yeah. Um, and they take bets on who's going cool. to win. So he gets involved in this game that's played on the streets of London um, that no one knows about uh, except for a select few who are in the game. Um, cool. Yeah, so this is uh, there are three stories. There's a fourth that came out recently that's not by the same guys. Mm-hmm. So these three are by the same guys. It's incredible artwork, um, fascinating story. So definitely give that a try. I just read it that's recently, exciting. so I really want to pass that on to somebody. Cool, cool. Yeah, I, I'm excited to to check this out. That premise, uh, it sounds excellent how how is this not a movie already right yeah like, well it kind of is i mean it's a thing that um i mean it's it's gladiators yeah so it's it's been made in a movie in certain ways and like i said hunger games has a little bit of that yeah. too um i but yeah this specifically hasn't been made a movie and i think that it really should once you read it yeah. um hopefully it'll knock your socks off cool that's exciting uh cool well my poll is Miss Marvel No Normal, uh, uh, and it is the the new. I guess it's it's not really a reboot because it's it's a brand new character. Um, the 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 title of Miss Marvel has been around for quite a while, um, but this is a new character taking on that that mantle, and it, this is written by G Willow Wilson uh, and uh, drawn by Adrian Alfona Alf, Alfona or Alfana. Something like that. Um, and I, the reason why I wanted to read this is because this is the best example of what Marvel is doing uh, recently uh, in, in regards to representation in comics. And th- this new Miss Marvel, I, people might might classically know Miss Marvel as Carol Danvers, um, yeah. who is uh, Captain Marvel now, and uh, is is getting a movie in what is it, phase phase. Yeah. Of, of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, um, if you don't know who Captain Marvel is right now, you will in the next couple of years. And didn't um, we already meet her in Cap- Captain America two? No. Was that Carol Danvers? No, no. That was uh, that was um, uh, uh, Sharon Carter. That oh was yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Granddaughter. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. But uh, this this new Miss Marvel. Uh, is uh, a very unique character because she's actually a teenage Muslim girl. Uh, and I, I, I don't know, if you read as many superhero comics as me, you'll, you'll recognize the fact that there aren't too many uh, uh, teenage girl characters that are headlining their own comics, much less 
uh, Muslim characters in general yeah. that are represented in in comics, uh, particularly mainstream Marvel comics, in uh, in a heroic light. Um, I I'm sure that you could probably point to a lot of caricatures of of that culture yeah. throughout the years, but uh, but this is a a realistic, um, down to earth look at at how a teenage Muslim girl deals with life in America uh, in 2014. And then on top of it, she's got superpowers. Cool. And uh, and throughout the course of, of this first volume, uh, it takes on the mantle of of Miss Marvel. And uh, and at at first, I I just kind of because this is kind of the premise. At first, because she has shape shifting abilities, kind of like Mister Fantastic and Mystique put together. Um, so at first, she she actually physically takes on the appearance of Miss Marvel. And uh, but throughout through through the course of the comic, learns to become her own version of Miss Marvel. So awesome. it's like a coming of age, uh, teenage story in the Marvel universe. And I am really excited because I uh, I'm a big fan of a series by Brian K. Vaughan called Runaways, and people have made a lot of comparison to that comic when when referring to this that this is kind of like the next generation of yeah. that sort of idea well and they share um, the same artist yes yeah yeah um so i i'm i'm cool i'm looking forward so, to that too. like it just came out so you should be able to walk into any comic book store today and and find this sitting on on the shelves uh because it's uh it's made a lot of waves in comics in the last year Right. And uh, and I think it's really important because I think that much like we we're talking about all these uh, uh, cliffhanger titles uh, today uh, and and how they kind of shaped what comics looked like for the next ten years, I think that books like Miss Marvel are going to shape what comics start to look like in the next ten years. So, okay. So very important for that reason. Awesome. Cool. And our uh, our pull is our good friend Jonathan, who back in episode number two suggested we read Powers. Um, mm-hmm. is also suggesting that we read Gotham Central. Now, um, he, we we didn't really like Powers. Yeah. So I wanna, I really wanna like Gotham Central, um, just for Jonathan's sake. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. Um, he didn't really give us uh, anything about why he picked it. So maybe we'll send him an email to to find out sure, why yeah. he picked it. But yeah. um, especially with the new Gotham TV series yeah. that have, has come out, uh, I I think this is a a neat one to pick yeah. and to talk about. Gotham Central comes highly recommended from a lot of people. Yeah, and I haven't heard um, it. Yeah, and I I have had Gotham Central for probably about three years in my collection. I've got a hardcover of it uh, that I picked up like on a free comic book day or something like that on sale. And, uh, and it's just kind of sat on my bedside, you know, stack of, of comics. Um, and it's something that I've been always meant to get to, right? Like it's, it's one of those ones that it's like, ah, I got to read Gotham Central. Everybody says great things (laughs) about Gotham Central. And it's just one of those ones that I, that I just always put off. So, um, yeah, you're right with, with Gotham on TV, um, and, and, uh, and, and the, the great suggestion from Jonathan, uh, it now is a perfect time to dig into that. So cool. I'm excited to check that one out as well. That's great. So that was, those are our three titles, Miss Marvel, No Normal. Um, that's volume one, right? Yep. And then Button Man, Get Harry X, which um, you'll find on Amazon uh, for 
you can get um, used copies for fairly cheap, so that's yeah. pretty good. Um, and then Gotham Central Volume One. I don't know if it has a subtitle, but we'll just stick with yeah, Volume I, One. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, and I just realized actually that this is our Christmas episode. Yes, it is. <laughs> As I was driving over, it snowed last night, so I, and I'm like, hey, um, since this episode is being released on December first, this is technically our Christmas episode, holiday so, episode, our, our, our holiday episode, <laughs> um, and we didn't do anything that was too holiday centric, so no. or specific. Um, so we kind of we kind of um, we kind of avoid that holiday episode syndrome though because because we release on the first right because right? all the holidays yeah. are always in the middle of yeah the so at the end. it's like well we're at the beginning of December but we read all our books in November right and then we I guess we could have picked Christmas books for for our December but polls, then that would be January but that would 1st. be our January It'd episode so. So there's really not a good time to do that, even though we kind of had a bit of a Halloween-ish theme for October, yeah. right? Well, maybe but. we'll have to, um, I don't know, if because we're at the beginning of December, next year we should ask people to uh, who have difficulty shopping for people yeah. to uh, get us to suggest stuff for them. Yeah. And that could good. be because then they'll still be in their shopping season. Yes. And, uh, and that would be, that would relate. So maybe cool. we can do that next year. Cool. All right, well, I think that does it for us on this so. episode, right? Uh, thank you guys for listening. As always, you can keep up to date with all of our latest news and information reviews over on pullboxpodcast.com, which is uh, where you can find downloads for every episode of the show. As well uh, as on iTunes. Yeah, as well as on iTunes. Uh, and uh, and you can stay up to date with us uh, on, on Facebook at facebook.com slash pullboxpodcast. And on Twitter at Pullbox Podcast, and you can find uh, Curtis and I on Twitter as well. Uh, my Twitter is uh, Arkwolf A R K W U L F, and mine's just my name at Curtis Finley. <laughs> yeah, I don't use it, so it's sitting there dormant. You probably don't even need to follow it, but yeah, <laughs> it's there if you want it's to. And, uh, and as always, we were always in need of your suggestions, so you can send those in to us at thepullboxpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, just a, sort of a brief one or two sentences on why you think we should should select that title for the reader poll. Um, and, uh, and, and, and let us know what you thought of the comics that we've read. Uh, whether in upcoming episodes or or past episodes, because we're we're always interested to hear what you guys have to say and and make you part of the conversation as well. So, yeah, if you send us an email about something you, that we read in episode one, we'll still talk about it and yeah. read your email if uh, even if it's episode thirteen. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, that's it, and we will we'll catch you guys next month. Yep. Have a good uh, have a good holiday. Yeah. <laughs>